Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the January 18th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm an unusually jocular Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist, an author, the host of the Capital Record podcast and the founder of the eponymous investment firm, the Bonson Group. David, how goes it? It goes, Will. It goes. <laughs> um, reprise your schedule for me so I know when not to call, which is virtually all the time. You, this week, have a very busy week. Yeah, it's our – uh, I got a bunch of client dinner events, and, and you know, we uh, will do big events sometimes, and we'll use, like, the ballroom at my country club and have 250, 300 people, and it becomes a little less – first of all, even that's not big enough, you know, wow. like we, uh, but five, 600 is just obnoxious. And um, so then what happened is it, it, it. I did these dinners, I don't know, for 20 years quarterly, and people like them smaller. So I said, okay, well, let's do three events oh, wow. at like 80 people each in the smaller room. So now I got I gave a speech last night. I'm giving another one tonight, kind of a market talk, economic commentary forecast. And then I do it again tomorrow night. So three nights in a row, different audience each night, but same talk, same venue. And so it's just a way of kind of doing the same thing as the bigger event, but splitting it up in three for that, you know, more intimate crowd setting. Yeah, 80. Yeah. 80, yeah. Um, are you as you know how some politicians run and they do big arenas? Yes, and some just like to go be with the people. With the people, that's yeah, how, that's who I am. Yeah, you're like Bill Clinton. I like to be with the people. Yeah, except for I hide out and stay in the green room. But sure. Um, do you? You know, I, I'm I'm told that uh, you know the sign of an introvert or an extrovert rather is that he or she is charged up by this sort of social interaction. And I, I guess I, I always thought of myself as an extrovert, but I find myself, you know, exhausted by the end of a day like yours, where I'm speaking in front of a large crowd, doing podcast. I mean, how many of these sorts of things have you done today? I, uh, I was interviewed on CBN earlier. I did. I didn't have a TV thing today, but mm. I, most days I do. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, you don't want to know my schedule on day. It's not. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> But um, look, there's some things I do in the day I love doing. There's mm -hmm. some things that I, energize me less. But when people do learn what an introvert really is, what an extrovert really is, those that believe me to be an extrovert either do not know what the words mean or they do not know me. Mm. Uh, because yeah, the the stuff drain, the the big public event thing drains me. Yeah, yeah I'm right. not really as unfriendly as I pretend. I like to joke about. It is true I don't read like all the emails or I have time to interact a lot with a lot of the stuff. But no, I really try to be friendly and nice all the time. But you get it, it's just draining, and it's a personality type. It isn't like a character trait. Like yeah. I don't I don't like people, and that's again. I've Although said that's this, true. No, but like with my, my kids, kid. I've told my kids repeatedly. Saturday morning from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., I'm all yours. Mm -hmm. Oh, that whole time? Yes. Yeah. Now, and and don't them, call me daddy. Two of them are often still sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> but that's on them, you know? Like, <laughs> I was speaking of really funny podcast, of which ours is not. The podcast Smartless, I don't know if you've ever listened to it, no. but I swear it's the funniest podcast mm. I've ever listened to. Say that again? What's it called? Smartless. One word, and it's with Will Arnett, who is hilarious. Oh, yes, I've heard Jason of this. Jason Bateman, who's a genius. And then and a then, guy I've never heard and of. And then, no, it's a guy from Will and Grace, who plays yes. Jack on Will and Grace, Sean. 
Zay? I've never heard of that guy, but I do hey, know Sean Hayes. Okay. And he's the least Thanks. funny and all that. But this podcast is hilarious. But um, there was a thing where they're interviewing uh, Ed Norton, who's one, a great actor, and Ed was saying how his wife had been told by Jason Bateman's wife that when the daughter of Jason Bateman found out he was going to be doing a season two of Ozarks, his show that he wrote, directed, starred in, that I think was on Netflix. Um, it was great. It did four seasons. I loved it. I watched the whole thing, by the way. But that his daughter came to him and said, oh, you are doing another season? And he goes, yeah. And she goes, oh. I was really looking forward to getting to know you better. <laughs> I laughed for like 20 minutes. Well, on the other hand, I did an interview this week with Mike Rowe on his podcast. Um, and it there's a there was a bunch that we were there to talk about a piece I wrote for National Review in which you and I discussed uh, about trucking and Assembly Bill 5 and its impact on California's independent truckers. And uh, first of all, I, I just want to say, like, Mike Rowe is in person as he seems on his show, Dirty Jobs. If you didn't have a chance to see that, go look it up. And I think they're actually doing a new season right now. It was on the Discovery Channel. Maybe it's still there. Um, but he is just a genial guy. Um, really a thoughtful interviewer. And I, I think what makes him so good is that he doesn't talk about politics as such. He doesn't talk about left versus right, conservative versus Republican, liberal, Democrat, Republican, whatever. He doesn't talk about that stuff. He talks about something that I know is near and dear to your heart and mine, the honor of work, the honor of labor. And anything that gets in the way of someone choosing their own vocational path is bad and probably even evil. And so, of course, Assembly Bill 5 is on his radar. So I'll put that in the show notes. The thing that reminded me of this, uh, besides the fact that I actually put it on the run list so I wouldn't forget, is that uh, toward the end of the show, my, my wife had said, I really want to meet Mike Rowe. And so I walk out of my home office and there's my dad, my daughter standing like right next to the door. So she comes rushing in. Hi, Mr. Rowe. And she sits down and starts talking to him. My wife comes in. She starts talking to Mike Rowe. They have a wonderful conversation during which Mike Rowe says what I think is the best. You know, my, my wife says what I think is the best line of the show. He says, do you do you read all the stuff that Will writes and, you know, the podcast and everything? And she said, nah, I really get that for free at home all the time. And yeah, so um, and that was by far the listener response uh, that came directly to me said that was the, 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 the money line. That was the best reason for coming to that podcast. Uh, but we did talk a lot about California politics. Mike Rowe lives in Marin County, he says on the show. And uh, it's clear, you know, that he is on the side of working people getting getting to do the work they want in the way they want to do it, and that he is against a lot of these government mandates. But but it sounds like he's that view is coming in his case from an anthropological yes, foundation. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. That work is honorable. It is necessary. It is a way that you know. I think you and I might put it this way. I know I would. So we honor we honor God this way every day by doing the work we do and doing it as as best we can um and i think i think he really gets that i love it when he climbs into i don't know an alligator pit or a san francisco sewer and you know he's doing this with people that he admires clearly because of their work anyway um lots to talk about this week why don't we start with uh, the kamala corner we haven't had a lot of these recently but um yeah kamala what has she been doing since she left the vice presidency <laughs> Uh, well, the, this, the story that you brought to us from Politico is... Were you laughing? I was. 
I read it and I thought they were like trolling her and I realized they're being serious and it's obviously planted by her people. But why don't you tell listeners what we're talking about and then you and I can make fun of it together. Yeah, the story, the headline for the story in Politico is why Harris World, like Harris World, um, why, why Harris World thinks she may be the biggest winner of the midterms, no longer tied to the Senate, the vice president feels comfort and flexibility as she hits the road on abortion, climate, and other issues. Mm. Um it is a story that could have been headlined the Kamala Harris reset again, uh, because this happens for us about every four to six months that there's this new Kamala who has emerged. And finally, finally, Americans will get to know the Kamala Harris California knows and loves. And uh, in this particular case, it's it's pretty clear that what they're aiming at is look the Dobbs decision is out there um, the, the Democrats really do believe that they not only survived but really triumphed you might argue in the midterms in large part because of Dobbs uh, just remind everybody that's the abortion decision uh, that overturns Roe v. Wade so um, she's out there on the road plugging away again and she's got a lot of people around her talking her up and saying that you know the administration just hasn't really appreciated her until now and now she's the woman who's going to make a difference uh before i get too much into the detail of the story david what's your uh, what's your sense of what's going on here well look i don't think you're going to find someone in biden land or obama land or even on the right you know where where you and i would stand whether on the right means kind of a pure MAGA personality or uh, let's call it more um, movement and ideological. Like people, What do people call us? Sellouts, establishment, yeah, rhinos, yeah. rhinos mm-hmm. you know, which I think just means you know the whole alphabet. <laughs> I, um, I don't think you'll find anyone in any various shapes of the right or left that believes like, oh, this has been a pretty strong period for Kamala. This is exactly the moment she's been waiting for. Look how her star's shining. Some of these things have been going on. It's really playing to her strengths. I actually think, and I'm not being funny. I'm not being, uh, I'm not trolling. I think that what I said to you as a joke at the beginning is what most people are thinking in this moment, which is, wait, is she, she is still VP, right? Yeah. And that's not because I'm trying to diss her. It's just a fact. She's not present. She's exactly the stereotype of what a VP role normally is, which is highly symbolic and extremely low on substance and contribution. The difference being that usually that person is suffering through the indignity of being uh, a waste while they wait out the time to run as the replacement for the the candidate that they served when that candidate's two terms run up. And the only difference here is it's very clear there's plenty of people on her own party. They're going to do all they can to keep that from happening. She seems to do all she can to keep it from happening. Mm. But the idea that like abortion, that the window's open for her to really assert her leadership or whatever, I just, I get, I try to think sometimes as if I were a pro-choice woman. And I'm, I know it sounds funny, but like, honestly, it's not impossible for me to sort of un, uh, like relate to the, the, not by empathy, but just some form of thinking what their thought process is, like what they get animated by, what they care about. Do I really think that there's a person that's just animated by abortion that's sitting there going, yeah, Kamala is there. Hmm. And she, I saw her give a speech where she said she's also pro-choice and mm-hmm. I'm pro-choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was nothing. She didn't do anything. She doesn't represent a sort of um, inspirational figure on the subject. She just, I don't know. I, I kind of think it's she's sort of a pitiful vice president. 
And that's not a term I'm using in a, in a response to her politics. It's it's the actual role she's fulfilling is pitiful. Well, maybe this will resonate for you. Uh, the reporter at Politico talking to a, uh, a, a Democratic consultant uh, has the Democrats say, look, people have a hard time figuring Kamala out because too often they're looking at an old model of the vice president's job oh, and they're not God. willing to take her for who she is and what her style is. Well, you then... I think you and I deserve kudos from him because I'm totally willing to take her for what her style, <laughs> what is. style is. You mean dead ass annoying? Is yeah. That? Okay. Yeah. Well, I got it. Uh, <laughs> she is. Uh, yeah, I, I could go on, but this this, this is the bottom line. This is a, yet another reset. We've seen them before. What does that mean? Don't take her. What are they saying? They're oh. saying that if you are so fixed on people like Harry Truman when he was Roosevelt's VP or Lyndon Johnson when he was Kennedy's, that you just don't understand Kamala. A, she's a woman, and B, did you notice she's a woman of color? Uh, um, what does that have to do with the VP comparisons to Truman? And I mean, Truman was a VP with a yeah. uh, four-term president right. in a war, right? And then LBJ was a highly disconnected from his president, uh, window dressing candidate, so that they could win Texas, which they did. Who was actually VP for two and a half years? Mm-hmm. I mean, te- you know, a little more, but it was the end of '63, so he had to go for the last couple, like, last part of '63, all of '64, of um, as a presidential, as a president, uh, as president. He was VP um, when in in the Cuban Missile Crisis right. and through Camelot. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out like what what do people think we're looking at like Kamala, Kamala and saying. That doesn't remind me of LBJ. Who's doing that? Or or Gore or, or anybody just, who's yeah. doing. Um, I, I it's it's she's VP. What are what are we talking about? Yeah, she. I mean, if if people on the and and the Democratic side, if they really think that Kamala ranks up there with somebody like you know, never mind Truman, uh, LBJ or Gore. You know, these are these are people who whatever you think of their politics, um, and I would argue they were mostly destructive, but these were serious people. Uh, Kamala has not been a serious person. Oh. And if I'm looking at the old model, you're right. I do expect a certain amount of seriousness, even from a person who fills a role which has been described no, as not worth right a bucket of spit. what you're saying, but that's not what they're saying. They're no. not saying, come on, quit expecting Kamala to be serious. She's not serious. They're no. not saying something pejorative. I, I, I'm not sure. They, they're not specific about what she is in this story. They must what, mean identity politics. I think that's all they mean. And that's you all I can quit looking. So when you say she's not getting anything done at the border, you got to realize she's a black woman. Mm-hmm. Well, that's mm-hmm. really racist and sexist. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, By the way, Kamala isn't getting anything done at the border. And I want to be on record that I don't think it has anything to do with her race or her, um, her gender. gender. Yeah. I think it's because she's bad at her job. She's bad at her job, and if you're on the Democrat side, it's that she was handed that thing knowingly, like unexploded ordinance. To, to yeah. Um, what was the other thing they gave her portfolio that what, was like big, big, big? Uh, very briefly, she went to Europe to participate in some of the talk around the Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit about that. She was over there. She wasn't able to put an end to that thing. She could not, and. Um, I think if you're not able to end the whole Putin world domination thing, next you just you got to move her on to the economy. I want you to handle the economy. The economy would be good, yeah. Supply chain, no, stuff. the whole thing, yeah, everything. Not just supply chain, all of all it. of it, all <laughs> the economy. Yeah. The California legislature has that in its uh, crosshairs. Um, 
In other big news, Katie Porter, uh, and I, I hope our listeners from around the state and around the country and around the world, especially you in Uganda, howdy, and to you f- folks in uh, Cambodia and Thailand, welcome. Well, no, Vietnam. Vietnam. We picked up big right. in Vietnam. I haven't shared with you all the new data. No, fantastic. You're laughing, though. I'm, at, I'm being serious. You're serious. Yeah. You have your serious face on. We've gotten really big in Vietnam. <laughs> have we doubled? Why are you laughing? Because we've doubled from what, one to two? No. No, really? We went up like 84 spots. Wow. Of rankings of uh, political podcasts. We went from, I mean, something like number 114 to number 40 or something like that. Wow. Well, good evening, Vietnam, man. Um, So Katie Porter is a uh, a 2018 success story in the Democratic Party. She comes out of the University of California Irvine Law School to run for uh, Congress. She wins uh, in a what was a very blue wave that year. Um, you might remember the Trump midterms, and uh, then went on to become very quickly the top Democratic congressional fundraiser, which is saying something. Uh, you know, she beat out Nancy Pelosi. She raised, I, I want to say the number was about $25 million, um, and then faced a, full disclosure, friend of the show, a friend of David's and mine, Scott Baugh, a, a longtime uh, Republican a leader, a guy who was in the, gosh, he was in the assembly, and then he was head of the Orange County Republican Party for about 10 years. Um, very, very bright dude. And uh, Scott ran a just really elegant campaign and was outspent, I want to say, about $25 million to $5 million or $4 million. I think 28 to 3 which netted 25 something in that range. Wow. Yeah. Good Lord. And lost by a whisker. Yeah, it went on. It, that, that, the, the vote count went on for, seemed like, weeks. Uh, so she just narrowly squeaked this out, spent everything she had in the tank to beat Scott. And um, and then just announced last week she's running for Diane Feinstein's seat. Just one little hitch in the get-along there. Diane Feinstein hasn't resigned. Uh, so this became sort of a little inter intersquad uh, fight here among the Democrats, like, oh my God, this is just not the done thing. We always wait our turn so politely. Uh, you know what? You're uh, you're on Katie's side on that part of it, aren't you? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. No, okay. you needn't wait. And so is the Dude, LA Times. No, no, no. You do wait. You do wait when the senior statesman is 70, not right. 98. 90. Yeah. Oh, she, Diane's not 90. Isn't she 96 or something? Oh, my god! I saw I her at the Kavanaugh hearing. I thought she was 131. She's 89. No way. She's 89 years I've old. I've seen some 89-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at one right now. Come on, man. Yeah. Like, you're closer on, to 89 than, than Diane. <laughs> Is she only 89? She's 89. God, she looks not good for 89. You're just saying that because they had the Hannibal Lecter thing out for her to scooter her in. No, I honestly thought she was like 94. She's She's frail. And I, I say that with respect. She's, you know. She's no, I don't say respect because I think this. This is not a Supreme Court lifetime appointment where uh, if I'm an ideologue and I'm like, look, I am in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's case. She could have stepped down during Obama, right. which obviously would have been the right thing for them to mm-hmm. do. But I can understand saying, like, I will weekend at Bernie's this thing if mm-hmm. I have to to mm-hmm. keep Donald Trump from appointing Amy Coney Barrett. Right. Guess what? He did. Yeah. That's what happened. Yes. Feinstein is going to be replaced by a liberal Democrat. Right. Their movement has nothing to lose. Their party has nothing to lose. The National Senate composition has nothing to lose. This is absurd. Yeah. And so, obviously, Katie Porter has a right to run. Yes. But. 
Well, but uh, why did she run for Congress it, and spend twenty five million? Yes, and wait two days. Yes, for after getting set in the new seat to say I'm running for Senate. Yes. Um, all kinds of possibilities there. Let's just think about a couple of them. One is is that it's easier to run for Senate if you are in fact in Congress. Uh, it you know si- being a sitting Congressperson allows you certain perks in terms yeah. of fundraising that are difficult to get when you're a. But you usually start your race a year uh, before the election, not two years before the election. Well, she's looking to pump up the tank because she's facing people like um, oh well, my gosh, no, no, no one else is announced. No, no one else is announced, but there are lots and lots of other candidates. She's trying to preempt Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff Ro is the big Kana, one. Yes. And there's probably a couple of lunatics. Let's assume those are going to be the serious ones. Yeah, the lunatics. Uh, let's see. So, uh, yeah, you've got uh, Ro Khanna. You've got uh, Sh- uh, would, would California elect Ro Khanna? I would think they and would. And Schiff. Schiff. Here's the, here's the article. Now, we're from- jungle primary in this yes. thing. Oh, so mm-hmm. I'll vote for Ro Khanna. There you go. If it were Roe versus Katie? Yeah. Better if it were Roe v. Wade. Roe so, might be my favorite Democrat in the House. We've talked about him. Uh, and, yeah. There's uh, some interesting stuff there. I've, yeah. I've met with him. Yeah, and then I've had people... I did, who, a, I did a thing, a hedge fund conference with him and Jeb Bush, and I was really impressed with Roe. Well, Conner. I'm going to ask the listeners who emailed us when you and I praised him on the Twitter debacle, where he actually no. intervened and told you know Twitter and stop others, it, like, man. stop no. engaging with the government. This is bad. It's not your job. Yeah. Uh, during the uh, 2020 election season. Um, so you and I praised him for that, and a few people wrote in and said, yeah, but you don't know about this. Um, and I haven't... So I'm asking you, listeners, uh, tell us why Ro Khanna is or isn't amazing. Um, but here's what's fascinating. Um I'm just going to offer the very quick suggestion that Katie Porter running for this thing raises all kinds of problems for us as Californians. And if you're a Democrat, it raises problems for you. She's going to have a lot of money will be spent in her race if she faces down somebody like Schiff or Ro Khanna or somebody else. It's going to cost tens of millions of dollars to run that campaign. Uh, But here's what's interesting to me. She owns a home in University Hills. That is a UC Irvine-owned piece of real estate, and they cap and subsidize the construction and sale of homes there. So it's a very socialist central planning kind of deal. You can buy a home here, but you can only make X amount of dollars on it. You have to be an active member of the faculty unless you're on sabbatical. Well, she took a sabbatical to go sit in Congress for two years and then immediately announced she's running for two more. Of course, she won in November. That's what we've been talking about. So now she will be out of UCI teaching out of the classrooms. And you could look at this as a benefit to all UCI law students. So congratulations to all of you who won't have to put up with this knucklehead. But the fact is, is that she is still up there and now she's running for Senate. So when will UC Irvine, on behalf of California's taxpayers, step in and say, enough. You don't get to live in student housing, basically, or faculty housing here when you're not actually faculty and you have no interest or intention of remaining so. Um, There's also the fact that she got caught in a bit of a a scuffle over at UC Irvine for forcing her students to buy textbooks from which she earned royalties. That's always considered a, uh, it's considered verboten. You don't do this thing. Um, there's, of course, we've talked about the fact that she got into a tussle with the Irvine mayor because her boyfriend got into a fight with a Trump supporter and police arrested her boyfriend, not the Trump supporter, who apparently hadn't done anything wrong, but her boyfriend punched I the guy in the head. Just, it's so, uh, her boyfriend. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot there that we could talk about. It's but so interesting. Yeah. Discretion requires us just to move on. So, um, 
She's really made her bones by running around playing the professor. And I, I sent you a few of the links to some of the YouTube things, but I doubt you've had a chance to look at them. But these are, she does these little videos the left just goes crazy for. It's like she owns the Republicans or she owns the right wingers. Um, and she'll explain something like this, David. Like it's inflation was caused, you're going to love this, inflation was caused by corporate greed as exemplified by CEO compensation packages. So she sits there with a witness from a corporation, like uh, I think it was... And and by the way, that is a line that gets used by the left from time to time, usually when um, there's inflation going on during their term. Right. Because if inflation happens during a Republican's term... It's the Republican president caused it. If it happens during their term, it's greedy CEOs, yeah. you know. Yeah, so she'll she'll offer these kinds of bromides of the left, and because she has a chart and a whiteboard, the left goes nuts because I, I think there's this kind of just reverence for lefty professors among people who had lefty professors. It's like they're back in the classroom again, and here's a chart, and the chart well, is look, scientific. Let's start off with the facts. These people are heroes. They are. And obviously, we know that you can be a hero when you teach a first grader, but in a lot of ways, you're taking the heroism of being a grade school teacher, and you're adding to it the other thing, because liberals like heroes, we all do, and you're adding to it faculty lounge gravitas, college. You're, you're kind of, there's sort of an intelligentsia component, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that takes just all the stuff we love about kindergarten teachers, and then you put that on top. Now Katie Porter becomes as good as it gets. It's almost a slap in the face to this idea of entrepreneurs and executives and wealth creators. They're just dirty. They they are engaged in more or less um, fraud, stealing from other people via the making of a product that people buy. So Katie is able to represent this kind of intelligentsia that is both heroic and uh, intellectually fascinating, and then she can do it with a sort of I don't give a blank kind of personality. Mm-hmm. So she's really countercultural. She's not uh, really well kept. Um, it'll, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there, she's not going for a certain. I mean, I never had any question as to why Katie Porter became a darling of the left. She's got a kind of iconoclastic thing, and uh, she's not interested in, in, you know, like a lot of conservative women, they're always like doing their makeup and trying to look nice and pretty. And well, Katie's just not even, no way. Not going to play that that. game. Not going to play that game. Yeah. She's very much a Midwestern sort of person, um, and she looks it. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I'm just saying she is a person who does not value, as you said, those kinds of cosmopolitan, sophisticated sorts of things. That's right. And I don't mean, again, I'm not disparaging people in the Midwest. There is a wonderful reverence among most Americans for people who live in the heartland. Uh, she looks like a heartland person. Uh, there's not a much, not much, I, I could go on, but you get the picture. Um, but what, back to the thing of this uh, uh, faculty lounge deal with her whiteboard and then an economic worldview that you were about to go into, which is that uh, inflation is caused by, by capitalists. Um, I'm not sure I could think of a dumber thing like that's the that's where neo-keynesianism became popular and i think a lot of people on the right understandably said like okay larry summers jason Furman, some of these sort of 
neo-Keynesian center-left economists became palatable on the right because they were the first people that weren't saying stupid things like that. Now, they're wrong in a lot of their Keynesian presuppositions, and yet they don't say things like, Inflation is created by the profit motive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are well aware of market correcting forces that don't allow someone to do that. And that also, the problem then is that, just like I make the point all the time, don't say the Fed created the inflation because you're going to have to then say they ca- caused it and either thing is true. The Katie Porter view would be that would mean that whenever we have prices going down, the capitalists all got together and said, "I want to make less money." That's right. Or I want to, I want to hurt. I want to suffer. Yeah. I want to be altruistic. Yeah. So that's a weird uh, implication in her argument. I don't think she really believes that. Will. Well, and she's also she's from California, so she should know better that during you know, the. You said she's from the Midwest. I'm sorry. She now is from California. Midwesterner. She was born in the Midwest and raised. Brought her clothes with her. Yes. And now lives in California at (laughs) free off-campus housing. That's correct. Where she charges her students, uh, she requires her students to read books that she wrote so she gets royalties. Um, But because she's from California now. By the way, I make my students read my book, but I buy it for them. See, there you go. So and, I'm doing it all wrong. And for a woman who made $300,000 in one year of teaching, she could afford to buy her students a book, I would say. But anyway. Uh, not with inflation. No. Not, yeah, that's like 30 Creed. bucks now. Creed. So she, um, you know, she's from California now and has been here for over a decade. And so she should know something about how oil prices work, given California's just bizarre uh, gasoline market. But during last summer's run-up in gasoline prices, where was Katie Porter? She had her whiteboard out. She had her, you know, uh, magic markers. And she was showing everybody that all of this was about price gouging by oil companies. And yet, of course, we know that in California, we can see supply and demand. We have a boutique gasoline market where oil producers are required to meet a variety of non-economic uh, metrics in terms of their oil production and so it costs us more to buy gasoline out here but like gavin newsom she accused oil companies of price gouging so I, you know again we've got an economic illiterate who by the way you'll be fascinated to know studied in law school under elizabeth warren yes she did yeah. liz warren is uh has come out and endorsed her for the senate seat what a shock yeah well it is a little shocking because liz warren's a major national player she was at one point a leading contender for a president she actually uh you know prompted me to go write a book about her because she had enough serious momentum in that race and when you got people like adam schiff and ro Khanna, who are no lightweights in the united states congress that are potentially entering and it's two years out liz warren going out early to endorse katie porter is politically risky hmm. so i i'm i i think that it just shows that kind of um uh obnoxious feminist loyalty Girl code. Okay. Um, hey, let's talk about the big news of the week, and that was Gavin Newsom's new budget. Uh, the, the big news there, David, is that the budget is still around $300 billion, about $297 billion and change. Yeah. And for those who want that in some kind of context, know that 10 years ago, the budget was under $100 billion. It's about in 2010. That's the, one of the markers. That was uh, Jerry, that was Schwarzenegger's last budget. Uh, the budget was $85 billion. Uh, eight years later, when Brown finishes in 2018, the budget is more than double that. It's $201 billion. And now it's 50% higher than that under Gavin Newsom. We're you know, closing in on $300 billion. We were at $300 billion last year. Remember the famous $100 billion 
Uh, surplus we had last year. Oh, that's, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's but, gone. But you know what's funny? I just, uh, I am getting so old, Will. I'm serious because I was very deeply into the study of California finances back post GFC. And my business, we were pretty. I'm sorry. Large, can you? I'm you? sorry. Fin- great financial crisis. Ah. Um, we were pretty significant holders and believed accurately that those California general obligation bonds that were trading at a huge discount to par. So they were a five percent coupon, and they, uh, you pay a hundred, you get back a hundred along the way, you get five percent. They were trading at eighty dollars, mm. so you were going to get a hundred dollars back on eighty and five percent along the way. So it was massive, but of course the fear then was no. The California budget's a mess, and the economy's terrible. And generally speaking, um, those munis in economically sensitive states like California get beat up during bad mm. times, like the biggest recession we'd had since the Depression. So in a lot of that research I was doing, I just got so stuck in my head that we were a um, $120 billion budget state that was facing about $90 billion of revenue at the time, and that we were basically been both revenue expenses teetering on this $100 billion mark. And were we going to hit 88 Would it get up to 110 Were we going to spend 90 Were we going to spend 120 It was in that range. Let's call it 100 mm-hmm. And that's what Jerry Brown inherited to kind of deal with a sort of $100 billion mess that needed to be more. Mm-hmm. And they had the original Prop 98 that required them, I think, to spend 40% of that on education. On education. And you're talking 300 billion. Yeah. And I didn't say this was the number I was dealing with at the Great Depression. These are the numbers I was dealing with at the Great Financial Crisis. Yeah. Which wasn't that long ago. Right. It's 14 years ago. Yes. Yeah. This is a shocking run up in spending. And the fact that last year and this year were at about 300 billion, which, as I say, is 50% more than the budgets that Brown left. Uh, but this is, you know, you, you got to look at Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom in total. And what you see is this run from 85 billion up to about $300 billion. So that's number one. Number two is the $100 billion surplus all gone this year. They're projecting now, uh, the Newsom budget projects about a $22.5 billion deficit. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, of course, which we've talked about in the show that, you know, we're, we're headed kind of headwinds of recession and that sort of thing. And California is very, very um, sensitive to recessions. We have about 151,000 people who pay more than half of all income tax in the state. Many of those people are leaving. I talk to some of them almost every week. Um, so... There are there are worse prognoses out there. The the most interesting one that I was looking at was from the Legislative Analyst's Office. They forecast a sixty two billion dollar deficit, not a twenty two and a half, sixty two billion, about three times. Um, the, the, the Who's deficit. the they? The Legislative Analyst's Office uh-huh. in Sacramento. Um, it's nonpartisan. Nonpartisan, yeah. and they tend to be very very good and kind of right on target. So. That's balanced against last number almost, I promise. But the last big number is that we have about $35 billion in a rainy day savings account. But keep in mind that we have the highest unfunded retirement benefits for government workers, and we have the largest population of government workers and retirees in the state, government retirees. And with that unfunded liability growing through Brown, through Newsom, that is the difference between what governments in California, state, local, have promised these workers and what they owe them as they retire is is terrible. We're in a very, very bad situation there. And almost no reporters cover this stuff. You know, I'm just used to reading reporters who just talk about like a $100 billion surplus as if it was really real, not acknowledging that we owe a trillion 
on retirement benefits promised to workers and have maybe 69% of the money we need to cover that. Um, so that's a problem that Newsom doesn't even begin to deal with. Uh, he made a few cuts, in other words, to, in short, to account for that $22.5 billion deficit that he's projecting. And the cuts, shocking his loyalists on the left, came primarily, they fell very, very hard on things like climate change. Um, so he he cut $6 billion uh, for things like subsidies for zero emission vehicles, incentives for solar panel inf- installation, uh, money to help low-income residents cope with summer heat or winter cold. Uh, he's not going to pay back this year the federal loan for unemployment during COVID. So he shuts down the economy, asks the feds for a loan to cover the unemployment benefits as people are kept out of their jobs for the longest of any state in the union, and then tells the federal government to go pound sand when they say, hey, you owe us about... And I do think, well, out of journalistic objectivity, you should admit that even though California kept people out of their jobs the longest, that's why we didn't have any deaths from COVID. The- Fair enough. Nobody died. We were able to. That keep, was the trade. We were able to make it. No one ever. And really, very few people got COVID. That's right. Nobody got COVID. Yeah. Um, thank you for correcting that. Yeah. Not so much a correction, just an addition. Like I want all the facts on the table. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting how they they play that COVID game, isn't it? That you know we did everything to protect people. We were the best. And oh, by the way, we had the worst numbers, and COVID hit us so hard. Um, so it, you can play both cards uh, with no it's sense kinda, of irony. It's kind of though, like uh, you can't. No one can say anything because at the end of the day, all conversations. If people are interested, with a like for me, I swear on my life, it's not political. Getting to a point of finality because I value logic and critical thinking, like all of these conversations get to a point where someone has to say, oh, yeah, everyone was going to get COVID anyways, huh? Yeah. And particularly after, because that's the thing, like all the vax talk going on right now, the vax did really suppress infection for the for, for the initial strain and the and Delta too. It's Omicron, obviously vax just didn't work. That, I mean, it's obvious. You don't think it kept people out of hospitals even? Oh, it uh, definitely um, uh, helped severity, but I also think Omicron itself was less severe. Mm. And I think that that's what happens with viruses, that they mutate mm-hmm. over time and become less severe. Whoa, whoa. You guys going to run that one by It me. was in my science book. That sounds like Darwinian stuff. Yeah. I don't believe in that. And so basically what I think uh, happened was what everyone uh, that we were reading in 2020 said all along. I don't have a problem with like this state or that state. Just say all states got COVID. Yeah. And that apparently airborne uh, virus uh, respiratory, trans- you know, the uh, when it's transmitted the way that um, – COVID was, mm-hmm. uh, respiratory viruses are highly infectious. Yes. What a shock. And so it is a bit, really big argument against the way we dealt with it as a society, and no yeah. one's willing to go there. Nope. Um, so let me just get back to this, and I promise I'll shut up about the numbers. But the bottom line is $22.5 billion deficit, $9.6 billion in cuts, much of that in climate stuff. Um, and then some sleight of hand, uh, about $13 billion by pushing a lot of spending to future years. Uh, one of my favorites was, travel back with us, listeners, to the most recent election in November when we had a proposition on the ballot, it was Prop 28, that would raise taxes to support, out of the general fund, to support music and arts education in public schools that already receive 
40% of general fund operating cash, 40%. So 40%, David, of $300 billion. 40% of $300 billion? Is that 80? Is that 80? No, oh, I'm wrong. No. Sorry. It's 120. Thank you, 120. I missed one of those fours. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, um, so, yes, a lot of money, record amounts of money pouring into public education. But we still had to have Prop 28 so the kids could learn music and arts in our underfunded public schools. We spend more per student than any other school in the country, any other state in the country. And um, long story short, David, uh, Newsom cut. So that passes, but Newsom cuts a billion dollars out of music and arts funding in public education so that it will be allowed to be produced by Prop 28, but he just cut it out of another place. So it's a kind of a little bit of a sleight of hand. And as I say, a lot of postponing to the future, a lot of bills that were passed by the Assembly and the Senate, the state legislature, that would require spending this year. He just postponed it, just pushed it off, $13 billion. So his savings is in the neighborhood of $22.5 billion so that he could present a balanced budget as is required constitutionally. The next big numbers to pay attention to... Um, are are not numbers at all, really. They're they're they're, they're dates. Uh, we'll know more in May after the Department of Public Finance has had a chance to really check out how much money is coming in from ta- or tax payments in April, uh, and then it's by the end of June, July, we the state legislature and the governor have to agree on a budget, and there there's going to be a fight. We've been talking about this when the hundred billion dollar surplus goes away and you hit into deficit territory and you've got a recession. What are you going to have to cut? There's some hope on the Newsom side that, in fact, the economy will be actually do really well. They don't consider the recession, which is why the LAO, the Legislative Analyst Office, comes out and says, uh, we actually calculate a budget deficit three times bigger than you do. So just we'll stay tuned to this, I think, is the, is the bottom line. <sighs> you cool? We move on? Yeah, what's next? All right. Uh, let's go to a couple of uh, catch-up items here. Um, one of which is, uh, let me see how I'm doing here, um, that AB257, you'll all remember this, this, is the fast food industry collective bargaining deal where the state, you know, unions could not organize fast food workers because it is such a transient kind of occupational place, you know, it's for high school kids, college kids, and people who are working up the, the economic ladder. It's not a career that people aspire to necessarily, but some people do stick around and they end up being managers and even owners of these franchises. So it's a really cool economic escalator, and it has been in California for years. California is like the the starting point for a lot of the fast food industry. Um, But AB 257, of course, would say that the government has to represent fast food workers in negotiations with labor. So the government inserts itself as if, you know, these workers really need the government to step in and negotiate their contracts for them. And um, so AB 257 passes, but the folks in the fast food industry run a signature gathering effort to qualify for the 2024 ballot, an initiative that would repeal Mm -hmm. AB 257. Um, The state of California at that point, it's very clear, constitutional law, we talked about this a few weeks ago, constitutional law requires in the state that as soon as there are signatures gathered, the government is not supposed to implement uh, the bill uh, at, at, at issue. Instead, this that's in the Constitution, or it's in the, it's in the state Constitution. Okay. We have one of the most sprawling constitutions on the planet, so you can imagine it gets into this kind of detail. 
But anyway, um, the Department of Industrial Relations said, screw that. We don't need no stinking laws. We're going to go ahead and implement AB 257 on January the 3rd, you know, when we get back into the office. Uh, there was a lawsuit, and a, and, a, and a state judge just threw it out immediately and said, no, 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 you cannot ignore the state constitution. This thing can't go forward until you've either verified that there aren't enough signatures, or in which case you can implement, or the voters have a chance to speak on it in 2024. That's the law. Um, so now the, the, the sort of the tentative numbers are coming in, and it looks like um, – it looks like they've got enough signatures to qualify this thing for 2024. So, bottom line for all of you guys, or here's the headline: No way. It looks at this point like no AB 257 for two years and until the 2024 election. I um, was amused in the link you sent where it's showing the update of the vote count and how you know the they basically have them and they you know need a certain number out of a much larger number still to go. The, one of the first comments after it was someone saying, yeah, but how's the dialysis petition going? <laughs> <laughs> Got to have the dialysis. Yeah. That, uh, that, that, to your point, should be a every two-year thing where yeah. uh, they get that back on the ballot to lose by 30 points. Yes. Uh, let's talk about um, a little section, David, that I call in reference to the Marx Brothers, not the Karl Marx Brothers, but the other ones. Uh, off to the racisms. Uh, here's the headline from Fox News, David. This is a story that's already... So I'm sure every listener has seen this story now. It just went viral because of its absurdity. Here's the headline, Fox News. California University Office will no longer use the word field because of yeah. racist connotations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, here's the lead graph. The University of Southern California. Doo-woo, doo-woo. School of Social Work will no longer use the word field because, quote, it may have connotations for descendants of slavery and immigrant workers that are not benign, according to a letter from the department. Specifically, we've decided to remove the term field from our curriculum and practice and replace it with the word practicum the letter said this change supports anti-racist social work practice by replacing language that would be considered anti-black or anti-immigrant would be not might be would be considered anti-black or anti-immigrant in favor of inclusive language um i love the fact that deep in this story is a response from uh, usc's school of social work so this is a, a department within the department right an office in the department that handles what was formerly called field work but the school of social science uh, issued a release that says we understand this decision was made by the office of practicum education out of a desire to more accurately describe its work because that office is not an academic department its name change was not subject to formal review process but the university does not maintain a list of banned or discouraged words as an institution of higher education we will continue to use words including the word field that accurately encompass and describe our work and research while also continuing our efforts to create a more inclusive and welcoming environment um so not usc not even a department, an office in a department, which has decided that the word field is a bad word. And this, David, at our favorite no, USC is still culpable because um, you do have uh, administrative offices and bureaucrats and various know-nothing, do-nothing, uh, uh, no-skin-in-the-game um, mediocrities all over the place. And the grown-ups are supposed to keep them from actually having any power or authority. Right. 
like we're all victims of the fact there's people around us that are, are if they had their way, could keep the world from turning anymore. Um, but usually people of greater wisdom and achievement just pat them on the head and move these worthless mediocrities out of the way so that the world can continue to turn. In this case, USC is allowing these people uh, who otherwise should be a skit on Saturday Night Live to drive policy <laughs> on something and make it, a mockery of the English language. It, yeah, it, it, that's that was my reaction when I read this, which is, you know, at what point does practicum become investigated for its references to something untoward? Or how about just the word cotton? Uh, you know, the thing that many of us wear as a fabric. Yeah, uh, you're taking it seriously. I'm not doing that. These people right. are these people are a effing joke. Uh, Come on, do you think they mean this? Yeah, do I you think, think they mean it? Do you think they believe the word "field" is racist? Yeah, I think I they. Don't. I think there are small people out there who look for these kinds of opportunities to build their their reputations, um, and they think that. Be, and you're because they're at a university, they think we talked about Katie Porter. I think they look like Katie Porter, and I don't mean aesthetically. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't. I mean, I think that they're usually very liberal white women and vacuous. They're um, not. I don't know. Um, I have a ton of friends. I, and I don't want to go down this path. It's embarrassment. Uh, you, do you mind? I don't know if you have an agenda or not. We're asked how to respond to it uh, because of our love of USC. Yeah. So this isn't just there's a California story, this embarrassing thing going on, right, it's at right. USC, and now we're tearing it apart for what's happening. Right. People want to know, like, well, what do you think of the fact yes, that USC? Yes, a lot of the, I, I should say, this was far and away the most aggressively sent story from listeners. Yeah, but always I, with a good humor, I got to no, say. No, no, not always. That's not true. I have, that people, I, I have people bring up stuff as if it's new information to me. And I always am like, okay, I guess you can't just take for granted that people understand that one's love for, let's say, for example, SC football or the fight on spirit might be biographical or introspective or personal, that it wasn't formed with like, hey, why do you love SC football? Oh, man, they got a, a political science professor who's really, really dug into Thomas Sowell. Mm. And so it just made me a huge – like the idea – that you or I are so naive as to believe that SC is somehow a vanguard against the liberalism of our day mm. and the secular humanism of our day. Um, from a business school standpoint, I think that there's a lot more impressive about the USC business school than there are other West Coast-based business schools that uh, have become much more econometric and mathematical and really hold entrepreneurialism in disdain where USC does not. And, and that isn't even ideological. It's just proof is in pudding. There's an incredible entrepreneurial skill mm -hmm. that comes out of the Marshall School of Business. Okay, we'll disagree with that. But... This is a school that is a mirror of the culture in which we live. Yeah. And the stuff I hear at UCLA Law School and at Berkeley's sociology department and at Stanford, everything those people do, and at USC. I have never for a minute thought that one of them was in a contest to mm. be slightly more conservative than mm -hmm. the other. Mm -hmm. They're an embarrassment. All of them. Pox on all their houses. Our affection for SC is connected to interpersonal dynamics in our own lives. Mm -hmm. If you really don't understand that, then don't send me an email. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Let's move on to San Francisco, where uh, the, the off to the racism's subject continues. San Francisco Reparations Committee recommends paying $5 million to black residents, supplementing income for 250 years. Not kidding. Um, that's by National Review's Brittany Bernstein. <laughs> so stupid. When I first saw it, did you know that I thought they meant $5 million total to be divvied up? And I was sort of like, okay, well, that's ridiculous and it's pretty token, but at least they're not trying to break the bank or anything. They're trying to break the bank. I thought they were like, here's $5 million, you guys divvy it all Figure out. Figure it out, yeah. Yeah, $5 million per person. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And this, I want to just make sure everybody's clear. This is separate from the state's own reparations committee, which uh, commission rather, which came to a, a decision that what or is potential federal or potential federal. Yeah. That's right. Um, but in the state, California has now proposed for our current legislature that they consider reparations payments of two hundred and twenty three thousand dollars per African-American descendant pre nineteen hundred. Um this one is uh, interesting. Here it is. The committee proposed the city of San Francisco make a lump payment of $5 million to black residents who are at least 18, so you could be an 18-year-old kid, uh, and have identified as black or African-American or on, on public documents for at least 10 years. Residents must also meet at least two of eight other requirements. Among those is that the resident is, quote, personally or the direct descendant of someone incarcerated by the failed war on drugs or is a descendant of someone enslaved through U.S. chattel slavery before 1865. Um I would just say I, I was talking to a reporter about this. When they said, when they say the failed war on drugs, they don't mean it in a libertarian way that no. some of our friends may say it. No. What do they mean? That it, it, on uh, disproportionately incarcerated black black people. That's okay. it. Right. Yeah. They may. Yeah. And and it it may have. Yeah, it may have. Um, and I think I wouldn't fight. I wouldn't fight against that. No. I, I think that you know the war on drugs was problematic. Um, I do is think, problematic. Yes, is problematic. Thank you. Um, but anyway. Uh, uh, what's what's fascinating here is I, I, I told a reporter that if I were going to write about this, what I would take a look at is the, the city, the county, San Francisco, their ability to pay on something like this. Uh, the reporter's question was, will this just kind of break the bank? And the answer is yes. To go no, back I would think they would just take advantage of the surplus they must have right now from oh. all the people that have come back to the downtown area that are working and shopping and using public transportation. They're rocking and rolling up oh there. Oh my gosh, they have a record deficit. Just to you know, huh. return us from sarcasm to you know, total gravity here. San Francisco is facing a record deficit, made worse by the fact that that deficit does not include the city's unfunded uh, liabilities for government retirees. They have more government retirees per capita than most other cities in California, and their debt on those things, their obligations on those retirements, is just astonishing. Um, and that's not included in there. So you're talking now about billions of dollars in the red for this county. And uh, and, and you could go on. Newsom's new budget cuts out transit projects for the Bay Area, which have Scott Weiner just like going nuts. Um, imagine that guy. Crazy. On you like a spider monkey. Um, so they're I said gonna, monkey. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry, real quick. Are they uh, in that budget with the, the, all the concerns and the deficit could be this or this? Is monkeypox in there? I did not see monkeypox, but so it's So they just, they literally want to kill all the gays. They want to, yeah, probably. Well, I mean, I didn't look at it down to the line item. There may be some funding in there for monkeypox. But, oh, okay, um, so it's possible it was in there. It is possible. Okay, back to. Um, but we have now, I have compared. State Senator Scott Weiner to a spider monkey, monkey pox, and you said a pox in all their houses. So that's a hat trick there. Anyway. Freudian um, slip. Freudian. 
And speaking of slips, um, so Scott Weiner. Uh, so the transit thing is is really problematic, and that's going to hit the city hard. Um, you know, David, we've got loads of stories here. I really did. Did we, did we have we gone this long, or did we start this late? I know we started late. We started a wee bit late. Yeah, but it's 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 cool. You got a schedule. You got a speech to go to, and I got a phone call to make to a, a potential donor about which I'll talk to you at another time. But. Um, you know, I, we, we could go on. I, I, I want to thank all the listeners who sent all the stories, including USC's and yes. banning of the use of the word uh, in a school. Don't say it, I'm not, I can't even field. say it. The new F word. That's it. <laughs> field. That's, that's the headline I wrote for this, uh, for this episode. If, do you, um, I don't care if they're conservative or not. I don't like it when we when when white conservatives talk about how they have a black friend who's conservative and they're like, oh no no, no I know a black guy. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of black friends, and some of them are not conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Some are, mm-hmm. and some are kind of apolitical, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you that I don't have an acquaintance or friend or a close friend in the black community that would have any idea what I'm talking about With if regard- I said the word field was offensive. No. I mean, imagine, uh, okay, so now I sound like that white guy, but sitting with my black friend watching a football game, I cannot tell you how many times the word field is going to come up. Now, slavery was bad. Slavery was terrible. I, write that down. We agreed. Right, yeah. Get a pen. Okay, got it. Slave and there were bad. P- slaves that were put to work in fields during yeah. slavery, mm-hmm. and therefore the word field is problematic. Yeah. We could just sit here for hours coming up with logical equivalents to that, that, that thinking. Yes, that's why I said the word cotton. I'm gonna, or or I, I'm going to go fill up my gas tank. Excuse yeah. me, gas? Yeah. Gas tank? Do you, uh, like, do you have any regard at all for the Holocaust and for what took place in the gas? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not even funny. It's just so stupid that people should, they should mock it. Yeah. And I think SC should be ashamed of itself. I think they, much like that time they fired the professor. Yes. Uh, <laughs> who was teaching Chinese negotiating strategies. Yeah, but it was a word that wasn't even the word. Yeah, but it sounded to some people no, right, like right. the N-word. No, but they didn't fire Chinese. him, right? They suspended they, they suspended and investigated they him. They investigated him. Yeah. This is, this is the, it's the theater of the absurd. Yeah. That we've lost our freaking mind. And this is a school that should know better in the sense that intellectually and economically and resourcefully, to those who much is given, much is required, they ain't that stupid. What the hell are they doing? Field. Theater. Um, Don't say theater. Sorry. Oh, do you, are you a John Wilkes Booth supporter? <laughs> <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, what you just said is tantamount to endorsing assassinations. Assassinations. Yeah. yeah. I'm done. That. I'm done. You can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it's easier for you and better for us if you subscribe and, of course, rate and review the show wherever you do subscribe. That boosts our profile. It sincerely does and helps others find us. Please email us with your comments and story suggestions, as so many of you did this week. Thank you. You'll find our email addresses and other fun details in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at the Radio Free CA. On behalf of my friend and co-host David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to Session producers lucas klaus thanks lucas right over there uh, also brian tong glenn hall researchers houston reese sheridan swanson and alex kachatri and to all of our friends at national review especially national review podcast producer sarah shooty thanks also to metalachi who are they the la-based mariachi metal band for our music what do we say at the end of the show la revolucion continua la semana proxima adios 